The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. For a full list of current recommendations and stocks owned by staff, members of Intelligent Investor can visit www.intelligentinvestor.com.au. Welcome to Stock Take. My name is Gaurav Sodi. Joining me today are analysts Mickey Mordek. Hello, Mickey. Hi, Gaurav. And with us also is James Carlisle. Hey, James. Good morning. Gents, another reporting season over. From, from my point of view, I thought this was maybe the best reporting season I've seen in living memory. There were so many better than expected results, some huge share price movements, lots of disappointments as well. But still, I'd call this still one of the best ones I've seen. Um, JC, you've seen probably more than anyone else. What, what do you reckon? Well, I think, um, yeah, thanks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a bit older than everyone else. Yeah. Um, the, uh, yeah, the, um, it's, it's all relative to expectations, I think, is the main point, isn't it? So, you know, back to pre-COVID levels is a, is a refrain that I was hearing quite frequently. Um, and I think that tells you something, you know, when companies are shouting from the rooftops that they're back to where they were a year ago, mm. in, this, in the scheme of things, that's a fantastic performance. Uh, and and can't, that's why everyone's been so delighted But um, for, for a lot of companies. But, you know, in the normal run of things, I wouldn't call that fantastic. But, uh, you know, in the circumstances, a lot of companies have done far, far better than expected. Um, the pandemic has, has, has hit a number of sectors very, very hard, particularly in this country where we've had the sort of closed borders, but uh, international borders, well, and some internally. But um, uh, the rest of the economy has sort of kind of moved along mm. uh, relatively normally. Um, so the sort of the tra travel sectors and the hospitality and things directly affected by, by lockdowns and um, some of the stuff that's got a, a you know, um, uh, higher exposure to, to Victoria. Um, but there are some sectors that have done, you know, really, really well. Um, an obvious one is pizzas. We'll come to that. Um, pizza delivery, you know, that goes well in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, retail, some sort of specialists, people setting up their home offices and homewares, those sorts of things. Um, groceries, of course. Woolies and Coles had, have had fabulous uh, um, six months. So, um yeah, it's been it's been sort of very mixed, I suppose. Yeah, anything online has just um, rocketed, hasn't it? I've been yeah, yeah, been a bit yeah. surprised by the sustainability of the online boom. I would have thought things like Kogan and Temple and Webster would have subsided a bit, but they've they fired on. And JB Hi-Fi probably has been one of the most surprising businesses of the last year or so for me. I think it's just highlighted what a very good quality management that is. It's been able to be extremely flexible um, as demand changes, but also how in that industry, there's there's no competition for them. I know Harvey Norman is there, but Harvey Norman makes most of its sales from furniture. It does and other things. things. Yeah. yeah, that's right. It's not, it's, uh, I think as we go into the online sort of age, if I, it's a bit of a tired expression, isn't mm. it? But um, I think specialization is what's really going to happen more and mm. more. Um, I mean, even JB Hi-Fi is actually a bit sort of spread out, I would suggest, mm. but um, uh, it's much more specialized than the likes of uh, Harvey Norman, yeah. Mickey, how, was, how did you say things? Well, uh, 
Yeah, similar to retail analyst James Carlyle. Heaven forbid. We have a running joke because uh, James uh, is not the Can't retail Can't do retail. Runner. Retail's uh, hard. Well, I do, I do goals and <laughs> goals and plays. But but you seem to different. actually do a pretty yeah. good job of them, though. Well, but um, yeah, the, the, the non-discretionary is, is a little bit easier yeah. than the... I'm not very good at fads and fashions, put it like that. Yeah. You should see me uh, on a Friday night. <laughs> Um, so yeah, no, I saw it in similar, similar terms, I guess it was all, um, about expectations and last March, uh, I think no one really knew how things were going to pan out. Um, as it's turned out, probably the government intervention has really, um, probably done what it was designed to do. And, uh, you know, that's helped a lot of businesses, um, not only survive, but, you know, record in some cases record results. So, uh, yeah, it looks like uh, things are things are better than expected, and I, you know, it probably bodes pretty well for the next year or two as well as 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 things do recover. And there's probably still lots of upside in some of the more cyclical stocks that are, um, you know, due to hopefully report better better results as the economy improve continues and, improving. And and the thing about the intervention is that the companies don't particularly pay for that. Um, it, it it it'll be paid for in future years through taxation and and that might depress growth uh, a little but the you know when you depress growth you also depress interest rates and it's been the lower interest rates which have kind of driven stock prices the last six months six to uh, to, 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 to a year i mean the the bond yields have gone up in the last few months but they're still a long way below where they were mm. um a year ago and so the companies sort of get the benefit from that um uh bump in spending uh but you know the the their valuations don't necessarily pay for it mm. yeah we're sort of just in this world now where the government just bails out corporations and it's just socialized losses um so you know that's that's probably a good thing if you're in the stock market really um <laughs> well also if you've got a job i mean you know so yeah, yeah. so i thought we should run around and do a couple of the best results that we saw each um you can you can throw in something awful if it turns up as well i've certainly got one of those but um jc let's start with you what were some of the highlights of, of your reporting season well first i'm honest which i've already touched on uh domino's so here's a question domino's uh pizza enterprises the asx listed company uh has the most stores in which country that's your starter for 10 well, it can't be Australia because that's the obvious answer and you wouldn't have asked the question. Well, it could be. Don't spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> You'd expect it to be, you right? You would expect it to be, yeah. That's right. Because yeah. they've got about well, 1,000 so, stores in Australia, right? 1,200 stores? 846 yeah, right, in okay. ANZ. So I'm not actually sure how many there are in New Zealand, but let's guess there's about 600 in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um uh, 742 in Japan. Oh, they got 700. Actually, it must be more than that in Australia because they've actually just passed, Japan has just passed Australia this, uh, this, this half. So, um, so yeah, 742 in Japan. I think they added 60 in the half. Um, and then just for completeness, Europe has about 1,200 uh, with roughly evenly split between France, Germany, and Benelux. Mm. So Japan now, the... Uh, um, the largest number of stores. And interestingly enough, um, it has a much greater share of 
company-owned stores. So half of those stores in Japan pretty much are company-owned compared to about 10% elsewhere, mm-hmm. which is an interesting difference in the models. And I'm not quite sure why that is. Um, but uh, uh, it has some significant effects on the financials because the company owns stores. Basically, the company sort of takes the risk of, of, of stocking them um, and they don't have to pay the employees as much um, because the employees don't need the incentivization and all that of a franchise store. So um, so they get bigger margins in Japan as a result of these company-owned right, okay. stores um, and stronger cash flow, mm. especially wh- wh- when they're growing. Um, and building building negative cash flow. Um, so Japan uh, now has the most stores, the highest margins, um, and pretty soon it's going to be, I would guess, uh, within the next year or so, it's going to be contributing the most profit. Yeah. And they still um, got a long way to go before they match the um, the congestion ratios, right? The the people per store ratios that we have. Yeah, store. that's right. So in Japan, it's uh, I forget the exact number. I think they have about one hundred and seventy thousand people per store in Japan. Mm. It's about one hundred and forty thousand in Europe, and I think it's about forty thousand in Australia. So the density is much. They, they they've got much greater scope to add stores uh, in Japan and Europe for that matter. And they're growing pretty well in, in Germany as well. I should wow, add. what an amazing success um, story. I remember when they first opened yeah. in Japan, people laughed at them. I remember a lot of sniggers and, oh, the Japanese don't eat pizza. Doesn't everyone know that? Yeah. And in fact, the first yeah, few well, years, they, they were losing money until they sent their senior management from Australia to live in Japan for a few years. And... While they were there, they tweaked the formula, and um, I think they changed a lot of the menu items for more specific Japanese tastes, and that that yeah. seems to have triggered yeah. a lot of success after that. Yeah, yeah, and they changed the management in Japan. Um, I, I don't know if this was associated with that um, living in Japan for a couple of years, but they changed the management in, in Japan in 2019, um, and obviously that has coincided with uh, a big improvement. Um, so, I mean, the thing about Japan is I guess they have very different tastes, I suppose, at least in fast food. Um, but they also do tend to embrace, I think they embrace everything, but they embrace Western culture in a, in a particular way, don't mm. they? And uh, I guess pizzas are a part of that. I understand that Japanese pizza consumption used to be um, on, on specific special occasions. Uh, and they've managed to actually increase the frequency of store visits for their customers. I'm not quite sure how they've done that. It must be through marketing, might might suggest. But yeah, or, or just more special occasions. I'm I'm I'm, I'm not convinced that they, uh, you know, order, order it for a Friday night meal as much as yeah. as people do in the West. But as you say, so I think it's a question of changing, um, you know, behaviors to a degree. But they they've also I think rolled out some of the new technology there first so they got the 10 minute delivery times um there first and i think the um the japanese obviously appreciate that um so more than anything i think it's just been execution as you you talked about the menu um improving uh you know delivery times Mm. um and uh you know so so really it's a question of of um operational excellence uh, and as you say, there's a long way to go. So the the one of the key things which I noticed when I started covering Domino's last year was this fortressing strategy they talk about, mm. 
whereby they essentially cannibalize their own sales by putting new stores sort of right in the middle of, of uh, sort of an existing uh, um, store network. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's the hallmark of it. a lot of great companies have done that over the years. Uh, Apple being the, the most obvious example, you know, by pretty much completely killing off its iPod with the, with the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fortressing strategy, you know, it's, it's, probably quite a hard sell um to franchisees because you know when you put a put a, a new store just a mile down the road from one of your existing ones they're gonna be a little bit worried but it really um improves uh, quality it reduces delivery times means people get um you know that means the pizza arrives uh, hotter and uh crispier um, and so the overall experience is much better. The stores also sort of sell themselves because you see the dominoes up on the side of the road. That's one of their best um, bits of marketing and essentially comes for free. Um, so I think the evidence uh, is uh, that um, it actually expands the market for the pizza. Um, they, yeah, they've done this in yeah. the US as well. The Dom- Domino's, the master brand has done that in the US and yeah. um and it, it's done it, it keeps it front of mind mm. yeah that's right it keeps it front of mind because people see the stores but it also makes it very very hard for the um uh you know the aggregators the uber eats and people the deliveries mm. um because they you know they have to send someone to the store to to get the pizza and and you know it, it's almost impossible for them to absolutely the they're effectively replicating times. the um delivery network aren't they yeah, well, which they can't yeah. do, you know. So, so they, 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 there's no way they can compete with with the ten minute delivery times. Why would you order a a Domino's pizza from or anyone else's pizza from Deliveroo uh, when it's going to take half an hour to get to you when you get it in ten minutes from Domino's? Yeah. And that's all enhanced by the fortressing strategy. And um, going back to Japan with one store per hundred seventy thousand, they've got a lot more scope to do that over there. What really stood out for me for Domino's, I actually thought Domino's was one of the best results of the season. I'm really glad you brought that one up. Uh, I was stunned by the sheer amount of growth still on the table. Even in Australia, where, as you say, almost a 1,000 stores, they can actually, I think they talked about a 30% still increase in the store network in Australia. And in Europe and Japan, they're talking about adding you know, multiples of the store size, so thousands of stores still to come. So in 10 years from now, you're still probably going to see higher store counts there's, yeah, there's years I think that, and years that, yeah. of, of more store growth to come from them yeah particularly in japan and europe i see a very long runway for growth and that's why the stock is priced so expensively mm. um but we took the opportunity to bump up the price guide um quite quite significantly so we're now gonna, not going to sell till it gets to 130 <laughs> the, the price promptly dropped it was about 110 when i wrote up the result and uh, promptly dropped to, to 90 or so um it's funny so, before uh, the result I, I own domino's pizza and before the result i was thinking okay a strong result here I'll probably sell into this result and um and, and book no, some profits. No, but when it. the result came out i i completely flipped and turned around i thought i got to find a way to buy more stock it was it was fantastic great result yeah i mean the only thing to say about that though is that you do want to just watch your portfolio weighting so i mean you know when a stock i mean we recommended it from much lower levels below 40 dollars. i think it was our first upgrade and uh so you know if you're getting towards that six percent um maximum portfolio weighting it might be worth considering um you know reducing a little bit um 
but uh, but overall, it's a very very firm hold. Um, Mickey, any thoughts on Domino's? I just don't get why people eat the pizza, but they do. Oh, so. hang on, I've got um, a story about that actually. <laughs> um, before I set you loose, <laughs> uh, so we ordered Domino's, which I think we got for six bucks a pizza. And in the same week, we ordered crust, which was twenty dollars a pizza. We have crust here when we when we have pizza. I, I think. Anyway, I think in terms on. of, yeah. I mean, pizza taste is very subjective. Um, for me, I thought the Domino's was better tasting than the crust. The crust was horrific. Um, but put that aside. <laughs> yeah, it's it's never very no, good. It's awful. Go. It's awful. But put that aside. <laughs> what what pizzas did you get though? That also. Oh, uh, I think with pizza, vegetarian is always better. I mean, I'm not a vegetarian, Ooh, but I think geez, when it comes yeah. to pizza. I, I always prefer veggie pizzas. Controversial, Controversial yeah. I reckon. Send in yeah. your complaints. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then when you compare the returns that the businesses, so uh, Crust, as a reminder, is owned by Retail Food Group. Um, Domino's, obviously, is, is Domino's. Compare the returns on those two um, businesses, and, and Domino's, it looks like, makes about three times the return on capital that um, Retail Food Group does. And the pizzas are priced... Six half. and a half. So, so you're effectively yeah. Domino's, well, retail food group. Crust has to compete with a business that charges half its retail price and makes three times its return on capital. It's just mm. an impossible business to compete mm. with. I think it's such in a strong, such a strong dominant position with with so much growth ahead of it. Mm. Yeah, and I guess Domino's isn't competing with like the local. No, um, not anymore. You know, twenty dollar pizza. Um, they're kind of going for that really cheap. Um, Quick experience, basically. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Whereas I guess crust is more so. I cut you off before. If you have thoughts on Domino's, now would be the time. Otherwise, probably should move on to some other stocks. Oh no, um, no, no, no thoughts. Yeah, my my thoughts are probably deferred to JC really. But uh, yeah, it sounds like a cracking story. So, but I guess from one Japanese thematic to another. Um, so ServCorp, actually, I thought I'd talk a oh, little bit about that's that. A, that's so a, the... that's an awful segue. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now you can tell why um, your hosting job is not an under threat anytime soon. Um, did someone say Japan? Um, so, so ServCorp is the provider of uh, shared office space uh, and, and flexible workspace. And um, so their, their uh, operations, basically, they'll, they'll go look for a floor uh, in, a, in an office building. Uh, and then they will rent that out to small offices, uh, sorry, small companies um, or um, kind of um, contractors or, you know, really small um, uh, workforces. Uh, and they'll, you know, charge that out on very short-term leases. Uh, and so basically they're, they're renting uh, for the long term, so say five or 10-year leases, and then they rent that space out uh, on much sh- shorter-term leases uh, for companies that don't have a big demand for space. So um, coming into the result, I guess, you know, most people probably would have thought that these guys would have been absolutely hammered because uh, probably one of the first expenses you can cut if you're a small business is your office space. And especially if you're just a one or two person uh, show, you can you can probably cut back uh, pretty easily. And these are short-term agreements as well. So, uh, and that did happen. You did see some of that for these guys. Um, However, uh, they really uh, benefited a lot from having quite quite a bit of diversification across a few different countries. Uh, and so China and Japan in particular um, came came to the rescue. 
so the the lockdowns there uh, were very swift and they were kind of uh, very short lived. And actually, I don't think Japan ever ever went into a full lockdown. Um, so, well, they uh, requested people stay at home, didn't they? They they they're not. They I think the the law in Japan says you're not allowed to force people to stay home. But they requested it. I think the result of of a sort of national request for people to stay home is pretty much similar mm. <laughs> in Japan, mm. <laughs> which mm. is fabulous. Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, so it, it well clearly though, it, like in the in this result, it showed that you know people were still uh, turning turning up. Um, so like revenue didn't uh, fall at all um, on on the previous half, which is quite in in uh, North Asia anyway, which is quite a remarkable. Uh, result and probably not something most people would have expected mm. um, back in back in March. So, and what proportion is is um, th- they define it as North Asia? Do they? Is that what? It, what what's not, the split? Yeah, it's North Asia. I mean, so most of that would be Japan. Uh, and what proportion of that is that of? Uh, so North. So, so so Japan would be about two thirds of Asia, and then uh, Asia is probably now uh, about half of revenue. Right, uh, but only so, since the pandemic. Since the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, it you was know, pretty it was, substantial, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was almost forty percent. So, uh, and it, and it looks like ServCorp's kind of model with like the more upmarket, maybe leather couches and uh, you know marble floor. Maybe that's uh, more well better better received. I think in in perhaps some Asian cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas I guess like in the West, it's kind of going the other way where probably in general, um, people are probably becoming less formal. So, uh, but that's one of the strengths, I guess, of, of the model is that they they can, you know, test these offices out in different markets and roll them out where they're successful and kind of pull them back. And um, you, I guess one of the... They, they, they were, yeah. um, he's had, the CEO there's had some really big ambitions in the US for a long time. Do they still have a significant American business or is that gone now? Yeah, so I was just about to to go into that. So, um, carry uh, on. The, the <laughs> <laughs> so the the US market uh, has been a, a bit of a problem child, uh, and I guess it's 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 been really unprofitable for a really long period of time. Mm. Uh, and so there's always been this opportunity that either if they get that division right, or if they just get rid of it, then profits could grow. Uh, just just from from that uh, and so finally what we saw in this result um, or oh, sorry from from the pandemic is that that has now forced them to close a whole bunch of unprofitable US floors mm-hmm. uh, and so the uh, the revenue fell um, but the profits actually didn't didn't fall any further right. uh, so were they making losses in the US yeah they were making losses and yeah, and, so and Kind and, of disproportionately, yeah. yeah, still are. Um, however, less, I think yeah. with without the pandemic, they may have actually been break even. So they've right. pretty much gotten rid of all the floors that were um, losing money, and there's a couple there that are still making money. But so. it's been about ten years. So the big expansion into the US, I'm trying to remember, was about 2010, I think. Hmm. And yeah. so um, you know, 2010, and then 2011, maybe they were still so. Uh, I'm, I'm, and they're mostly ten-year leases, aren't they? So now's their opportunity to to get out of a lot of those, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's right. Like it was probably coming up to time where they would have to decide on that business anyway. Uh, and I mean, there's always a reluctance to let go of stores. Uh, sorry, 
flaws because you know you've you've invested a lot of money in uh, fitting them out and you've got to break the leases but uh you know it's obviously becoming apparent that you know if you've had 10 years it's not working it's probably never going to work so uh so i think that's a good thing that's a positive development um to come out of this and that means um you know they can just focus on 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 their profitable areas um which should be good so I think the stock's up about 50% since you recommended it, Mickey. Um, what do you think about the valuation now? Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a hold, uh, which is, um, what, you know, as we said in the result, uh, it's, it is cheap, but I think it's also a business that um, is, is probably deservedly cheap. It is a risky business, uh, even, even though they've managed to navigate this quite well. Um, a lot of that's down to cost cutting too, and you know some of those costs will will return to the business, uh, you know probably as it as business picks up mm-hmm. again. Uh, so you know in terms of the outlook, like at the moment, I think it's on. It's still got a free cash flow yield above ten percent. So really, you don't need much to happen here to get um, you know a double digit return. And are they paying and out dividends? They are paying out okay. dividends. Yeah. So the dividend now is um, above five five percent. Oh, right. uh, no. No, no, franking mm. though. Um, that's what comes of having a fifty percent shareholder. Exactly. Does he still yeah. have fifty percent? Yeah, he's still got fifty percent, um, yeah. roughly. Yeah. We'll give or take. Yeah. My my concern. I, I used to be well. I used to cover Circle when I used to own it, and I used to be a big fan. Oh yeah, of it. I remember. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, well, and it used to be. I remember three fifty six rings a bell. Actually, I think that might be where I upgraded it about sort of seven eight years ago. Mm. Um, did alright for a bit. I don't think we we sell, we didn't manage to sell it um, at the top when it got up to about eight bucks. It just seemed like such a, a high quality company um, at the time, and as you say now, it has the look of a of a low quality company and and priced accordingly, and that that may well work out. But it's a wholly different whole different proposition to what it was. I, I just feel my concern is that. Its real competitive advantage was in serviced offices, in as much as it had that sort of um, high quality, the mahogany, the marble. You know, it was just built for a world where people wanted an office in some shape or form, you know. Um, and now we seem to have moved to a world of, of shared working, um, which is a slightly different sort of niche um and it's i mean as you say in some markets not so much maybe uh, japan but um i don't think that the brand translates that that brand advantage that they had i don't think that translates into the the shared space so i yeah so look i think you've correctly um established that it's uh, lost its uh quality um uh, but there's a price for that and uh yeah certainly seems quite cheap yeah. Well, yeah, no, I agree with everything you said. And uh Well I, I think mean, it's I you that the... persuaded me. I was with you a couple of years ago. So, <laughs> well, I, so I, I yeah, I downgraded this actually. Yeah, that's right. I think about yeah. the current price. I think it was you that, that, that explained all that to me. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good but, good um, example of why yeah. it's good to get a fresh set of eyes also on a stock. Uh yeah. we we bring a lot so of baggage can... when we cover these stocks for a long time. That's right. Mm. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, the thing was the the reason that um you know you got confidence around upgrading it, and probably wouldn't have, but you just you read the you read Alf's um AGM speech, mm. and he just said, you know, we've been through. Oh, go go and read the go and read the AGM article. I don't want to butcher the quote, but it's um 
you know, just they're, they're, gonna, they're, they're gonna be they're gonna, <laughs> they're gonna be making they're gonna be making lots of money. They've gone through lots of these things before. They had the GFC, they had WeWork, you know, and and uh, and really kind of you know just having someone like that, you know, the founder there, kind of saying our business is gonna be fine. Mm. Uh, we're gonna make lots of money this year. That's kind of what I, I feel as though that's push, kind push of what Alf tends to say. Um, <laughs> I think that's his that's his careful. Thing. He listens to the podcast. I think. So. Oh, he, is he? Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, well, he's been fantastic over the years. I mean, <laughs> no, well, there you go. <laughs> Let's quickly move no, on to just... different stocks, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, sorry, Mick, anything else to add uh, about ServeCorp? No, that's it. So, yeah, so we'll keep an eye on the price guide, but um, all going good so far. And hopefully, um, hopefully, well, I guess, yeah, hopefully the, the CBDs do eventually recover and, and they can, uh, you know, find a few um, flaws to, to, to expand mm. over time. Well, if ServeCorp was an example of a surprise hit, the business I'm going to talk about, there was no surprises about its success at all. And Mickey, note that's the way you do segues. <laughs> so BHP, of course, um, ran through, it, it's facing un, an incredibly high iron ore prices. So everyone knew the result was going to be great. And it was great. Um, but for me, the interesting thing about the BHP result was digging through beyond the iron ore result. And I think sometimes with booms, a lot of investors are focused so much on the booming segment of the business, they just ignore all the other segments, even though they carry very significant weight on BHP's balance sheet. So these are big, substantial assets that aren't contributing much in, in percentage terms because they've been swamped by sensational iron ore earnings. And we're talking here about um, Metcoal. So BHP owns the best metallurgical coal resources in the world by bar none, um, a, a huge copper business and a significant oil and gas business. And then, then you've got a, a few um, other things like Potash, which is they're looking at developing and it's an interesting project. But those, all those assets are large, high quality. Um, it can be extremely profitable across the cycle and they're just not looking very good because iron ore is, is swamping those results. And, and for me, that was the real kicker. Um, and that's what gave me confidence to hang on to BHP for longer, even though throughout most of its history, the BHP $50 is an unusual thing and usually signals it's time to sell. But we're not in a cyclical boom at the moment. You look at most commodity prices, I mean, take iron ore out. Copper has actually gone up a lot so far this year. Um, but that's a relatively new movement, and and nothing else is really moving that much. So we're, this is not a result of some excessive uh, cyclical boom. Uh, I, I think there's a lot more to come from BHP. I think they potentially can generate really good returns from here. And it just shows how quickly the business has changed. I mean, five years ago, this was a genuine cyclical pig. It would make a lot of money when the prices were high. It would make very little money when the prices were low. And your job as an analyst was just to kind of navigate those cycles and pick when to buy and pick when to sell and follow the CapEx. It's very different now. I've, I've, as I've said in, in reports, I think this is now a properly high-quality business. It's a cyclical business. But it is now well-managed, capital is well-deployed, the asset base has now been um, finessed, and so everything they own is fantastic. 
it is one of the great Australian businesses and I'm not sure it gets that recognition yet, even within the team, I might add. <laughs> um, I'm a big fan. I, 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 the only way I can understand mining is to buy the low lowest cost operator yeah. in each segment because they're the ones who are still going to be standing when everyone else is, you know, crushed. Um, that sort of fits with my quality sort of approach. And I think what you're saying is that BHP basically is now that. Is now that, yep. And and it's become yep. that by tweaking its um, its portfolio. So it has actually shed a lot of the more cyclical parts of its portfolio. And it's also the main change has really come from a complete revolution in the way they think about capital allocation in this business. It's It's quite striking. And I've count myself lucky that I've seen both iterations now of, of B- I've covered this stock for about 10 years and I've seen BHP when it had its old capital allocation framework and the new one and it really has made all the difference and it just it really has brought home for me how important management is to any business even a business where you have no control over your prices or you're digging stuff up and, and selling it management is maybe the most important thing in, in just about any business. And that's a newish revelation for me. Five years ago, I don't think I would have said that. And I certainly think it's true now. Do they let, like do they... as well, the, well, sorry. It's a, yeah. So no, it just seems like it's a kind of a common theme across the mining industry in general, like not just BHP, but it seems like a lot of the miners that you cover are going through this sort yeah. of revolution. No, absolutely right, Mickey. And, so who's who's buying all the low low quality mines? <laughs> Maybe they're going cheap. Oh, there, Maybe we should switch there are, there are to still the, lots you know, of the high cost mines. Yeah, yeah, there are still lots of low quality. But but Mickey's quite right. Even the even the low quality stuff, um, management across the mining industry has dramatically improved, and it's it, it kind of makes sense when when the big guys move in one direction, the entire industry tends to follow. And BHP and Rio in particular led the move to focus on volume, to expand, and to not focus on cost and productivity, return on capital over for, for more than sort of 30 years. And now that they've gone the other way, the rest of the industry has followed. I'd, I'd call out gold in particular as being exemplary. I mean, the Australian gold sector is now the best in the world. And I'm almost tempted to, to wade back in and have a look at some gold stocks at some stage because they're actually... But is that because they've closed the high-cost mines? No. Or, or, so what's happened to the high-cost mines? Have they become low-cost because they've worked out how to do it better? Look, there's, or... there's plenty of high-cost mines still. I think the difference is that um, they've managed to to tweak their portfolio. So um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Evolution Mining, we actually used to share a building um, with Evolution before it became Evolution. Um, and... Uh, one of the great regrets is that I never invested, even after I had uh, talked to the CEO, uh, decided he was fantastic. And um, and I don't know, I, I liked everything about the business, but we just never covered it because um, it was a gold miner with, with poor quality assets. But they've, um, they do use high-cost mines um, in the portfolio as a cyclical kicker, but they've also added um, better quality assets in that, inside that portfolio. And they just manage their um, capital allocation much better. So in the good times, you actually get a lot of cash out of these businesses. And in the poor times, they still make profit, but they because they don't take on so much debt and they don't have the capex, um, you don't lose as much. So the, the cyclical highs have been amplified. The cyclical lows have been deflated. And you just don't get those wild swings um, anymore. They're just better managed. And we... 
And we we actually had a cyclical though, um, didn't we? Uh, sort of uh, two or three years ago. I mean, you better um, because I mean, all it sounds a little bit like what you could be saying towards that. Time yeah, look, maybe you're right. But maybe um, right. but we did yeah. actually. But this was all tested, wasn't it? Two or three years well, ago, that's this right. new sort of focus on capital allocation. Yeah. Because two or three years ago, we had a bad run for exactly and that's when we the, the last time we upgraded um bhp was was under uh, the new capital f- capital framework um and the, the commodity prices were very low and the share price fell but we the bhp did not um it did not have huge write-offs it didn't have the same sort of problems it's had in the past um and the test was always how would they behave when the boom was back and i think we've seen now what happens when these big miners are flush with cash and and that's the answer is that they just hand the cash back and they buy back their own shares there's no longer this imperative to grow at any cost and that's a good mm. thing for the industry so um, I, i've been really happy with bhp's results in particular i would say rio when you look past iron ore um, rio tinto really disappoints and I, I worry about that asset base they've not paid enough attention to that asset base and I think there is more pain for Rio once we come to the other side of this iron ore boom. Whereas BHP, I think BHP can actually protect it, the earnings that have grown with iron ore because of all the other assets underneath it. But I think that's enough of BHP and mining. Gents, any questions or comments on those? And you guys wouldn't own uh, sounds, BHP, sounds would you? It's, it's a huge chunk. I think yeah, BHP is the single largest position in our, in our growth fund um, at the moment. Mm. Is that that's because largely due to its performance? Uh, yes, and also because uh, we, we haven't sold it. I just every time I get a note from Nathan, should we sell now? Should we sell now? <laughs> I have to, can, I have to <laughs> tell him no, no, don't sell. Yeah. Um, well, I guess the other hmm. key with the like with BHP um, is just how long their 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 um, assets are meant to produce for, right? Yeah. Like, so they're just kind of they're almost like a I don't want to say like a bond, but like they're they're just depending on what the price is, then, uh, and if they don't change it too mm. much, then it's pretty predictable cash flows, really. It's, so. it's been pretty ever-present as well, hasn't it, in our portfolios? I mean, we bought it, uh, I remember you upgrading it around 30 bucks, and it promptly sort of fell to about 15, yeah. um, along along with everything else. When was that? That, that was, was, I think, 2016, and that was when they had that big um, down collapse. Was, there was... Yeah, that was the bit. Well, uh, yeah. yeah, that's right. But there was all that was also a big that was the big commodity collapse, wasn't it? Um, yeah. And uh, you know, and I, I suppose what that tells you, so it's about fifty dollars now. What that tells you is that you you can just ride through these things a bit because I mean, we we originally upgraded it about thirty and then mm. kept kept backing it all the way down, yeah. and so hopefully some people picked it up at cheaper prices. Yeah, and you've got really good dividends <clears throat> all the way throughout, and that's that's great. You can actually, I, I think the dividends would make a huge chunk of your returns uh, if you did that calculation, which we should do at some stage as well. But yes, um, so very happy with uh, with BHP's performance. Um, JC, you got another stock for us. So the next one I was going to talk about is um, is Altium, mm. which. Not such a good result, but but quite interesting. Um, you know, it uh, the, well the way Chief Executive uh, Aaron Murkazimi, uh described it was that uh, the company's been in a pit stop in the last six months, which oh, is uh, <laughs> it's always a bit of a bit of a worry when a chief executive he loves says his that. Analogies. He does. He's he gone into motor racing. He was on, he was on cricket was on last cricket time, wasn't before. he? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's been on cricket for a few right, years. Right, and now he's gone to uh, motorsport. I think right. he okay. switched to motorsport, which is which is good. Um, but it does it does kind of describe it 
what's what's been going on pretty well. So they've been whizzing around the track and uh, getting lap records, and <laughs> you can take, you can take this a little bit too far. But um, you know, with the pandemic, a few of the things that they were going to be doing anyway, they've sort of they've pitted a little bit early, perhaps, and they've they've gone and uh, sort of done them anyway. So they've um, they've reorganized their sales process, uh, splitting it into two channels. Uh, one for uh, low touch digital sales and one for the sort of high touch um, high sort of high end customers which need a little bit more um, molly coddling to get them over the line and they need a little bit more integration and all that sort of thing um, and they've also uh, established a new business unit um, which they're calling nexar now I, I suppose to explain that I need to backtrack a little bit so they have so they make software um, to help people design uh, printed circuit boards, which are the little gizmos that go into most electronic products, the plastic sheet with with bits on them, the resistors, capacitors, chips, and, and so forth. Um, and so they made the software that desi- helps people design these, but um, and they've been increasing their market share up to they're pretty get, getting pretty dominant now and so with that dominance the plan is to transform the whole industry because at the moment the situation is that the person who's designing the PCB um, they they need to talk increasingly with the way uh, electronic goods are going the design of the the overall mechanical design is is increasingly important as well for things like wearable devices fitbits that sort of thing um, it's all—it's a matter of getting the PCB small enough in the right shape, all that sort of thing. So, in order to get the PCB designers to talk to the mechanical designers, and also um, to talk to the people, you know, the, the availability of components, uh, and then the final manufacturing of the of the product, all of that needs to be combined in the design process. Um, so, they've launched uh, something called Altium three six five, which is a cloud. Uh, cloud environment whereby you can put your design uh, easily from Altium Designer, the, the, the design software, and people in the other, um, the mechanical designers uh, can easily go in and look at it um, and and make suggestions, um, say, you know, you can't do that because I need it to be smaller or whatever. Um, you can also see what the availability of parts is nice and easily. Um, they've bought a business called Octopart, which is an online component search engine, which fits nicely into it. And they're also developing a small smart manufacturing business, which also sort of ties into that. So it it really brings all of those processes together um, and helps the industry, the overall PCB design and manufacturing industry uh, communicate. Um and uh, and so they 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 they've established this new business unit. So they make the design the, the design software. That's a separate thing, and they've established this new business unit to um, deal with with all the other stuff. So um, uh, Octopart, the the search engine, the component search engine, and and the smart manufacturing business um, are now move are being moved into Nexar, and. Uh, the way he describes it, they now have two. Uh, sorry, they've moved from having one growth engine with one flywheel to having two. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, yeah, this, is, this is where the first so was. To, to two growth engines with four flywheels. Um, so, is that a double or a triple in the share price? 
Uh, <laughs> well, it's been a 30% fall so far, or a 20% fall. Need so less far. flywheels. That's too yeah. many flywheels. Well, it's, it's back a bit. yeah, I mean, look, but it, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, he, he some of his, um, some of their, their releases, Altium, are a little bit uh, uh, promotional, it seems at times. But, you know, I, I like that he's enthusiastic. I like that he's got a plan. And I actually like that he uses some, you know, imagery. He, he makes an effort to try to explain it to people, and I think that's important to, uh, you know, to the market. But who cares about that? Long term, what matters is what happens to the business. And internally, uh, you know, I think I'm, I'm presuming that he's describing it in in this way to, to to staff as well. And I think it will help them understand what they're all trying to do. They'll know that they're part of a particular flywheel. Um, and the idea is to get those flywheels spinning as fast as possible. So the fly, so the dominance engine is based on the the is what he says based on the PCB design software and has those two different sales channels. So one flywheel is the direct uh, sales, and then the other is the is the high touch um, uh, sales channel. And then there's the transformation energy uh, engine, um, which has Altium three six five, the the cloud tool. Um, and this new division, Nexar, as those two flywheels. So the so the staff within the business who are allocated to each of those units, um, they know that what they're doing is important, and they and and uh, they know what part they play. Spin spin very fast. Mm. <laughs> um, so I, I so I think it all makes sense, uh, but it's caused a few um, difficulties in the short term because having split the so they were discounting heavily. Uh, their their product Altium Designer during the pandemic, um, but having split out the sales channels, they decided they didn't want to go back to discounting because it would sort of flag the discounts to the high touch channel, um, which which wouldn't be very helpful. So when the second wave of the pandemic hit uh, in the northern hemisphere, they found themselves really without the option of going to discounting. So that's I feel like down as well though. I feel like sometimes with promotional management teams, the risk is just that they're not telling you everything. And so, like, if it, it could well be, as I've said, and I guess in this case, you know, Mercosemia owns a lot of stock. But um, do you think that's maybe why the share price is down? Like, people are just doubting what what they're saying, or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, it was a, it's a pretty messy result, and a lot of this is in the future. Uh, so you know it, it's going to be to do with um, uh, um, you know execution, but they've executed very well for the last sort of seven or eight years. I mean, Mercosimi he came into the business that his business was acquired by it in I think about twenty eleven, and um, ever since then you know he's executed beautifully, um, and I, I I I I would back him to keep doing so. You, you can see the glass as as half full, oh, half empty. I, I see with with him that it's very much um, half full. So that's, I suppose, the point. You you either back him or you don't. I I, I find mm. that, uh, um, you know, I, I like that he has a plan. I like that he, you know, he he's and also he's uh, technically very strong. Of course, his background in, is in is in all of this, and I think it's great that you have a chief executive who has. As a background of actually really under, deeply understanding the product, and very very aligned as well, I guess, in sh- shareholding and 
Yeah, but I, I get the feeling that he doesn't really care about that. I think he mm. wants to build something great. I don't think he's particularly... Uh, I think, you know, the the money will come. I don't think he is particularly um, uh, motivated by that. Mm. Uh, I think he wants to build something great, and I think I, I would back him to do so. JC, just confirming, you upgraded Altium as the stock fell post-reporting season, correct? Yeah, that's right. So um, the buy price is $30, and, and it's been $30 since right at the beginning, despite the share price. Oh, it's been down, it got down to $23 in the, you know, so we upgraded about 27 28 with a buy below 30 and then it got down to 23 in March last year. Um, and it's been as high as about 40 Um mm-hmm. And that, but ahead of the result, I think people, you know, knew what was coming, and so it did slip below thirty bucks. Um, uh, but we didn't upgrade straight away because uh, we just wanted to see the result ready. But the result came in, and it, it all looks like it's proceeding to plan to me. Um, so we were happy to upgrade at um, around about twenty nine dollars after the result, and since then it's slipped to sort of twenty five, twenty six, um, and still very comfortable with it. I mean, it, it's very expensive, right? That's the other thing to understand with Altium is that it's um, you know it's on a forward PE of about sixty. Mm. Uh, it'll be it'll be a bit less now, um, but uh, the you know that, so that shows you. I mean, the market really there isn't much. Dispute in the market about um, you know the potential that it, that it has, and I, and so when you ask Mickey whether people are doubting it, I, I don't think people are doubting it so much. I think people are just um, slightly concerned about how long it all might take. I suppose there's slightly more risk with the the long term growth plans, or that's what the market's thinking. Um, but also there's the interest rates, right? So uh, so with bond yields almost doubling uh, in the last three or four months. Um, high growth stocks, you know, with their earnings way into the future, um, that they, they've suffered a bit, and uh, Altium would be one of those. So I think it's a combination of those those three things. But make no mistake, it's still uh, an awful lot is still expected of it. Um, but I'm, uh, you know, confident uh, backing it. I own it. I own it myself. I should say. Hmm. Very good, um, Mickey. What do you got for us next? Uh, so I, um, I thought I'd talk a bit about Omni Bridgeway. Uh, so we've got an article going up on that. Um, it's been written, so hopefully that goes up before this podcast. Uh, so I'll yeah, do my best, it... Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends how much uh, work you have to do to it. Um, so I got got started on it pretty early in the morning, so there may be a few. Um, few mistakes in it but uh there was um yeah so this result uh, so obviously omni bridgeway is the is the litigation uh funder and fund manager uh so that means that they go and they fund uh court cases on behalf of claimants who uh you know find it a bit risky or can't afford to actually um, pursue these lawsuits themselves mm. uh they've got a great track record of doing it and uh they're now building a funds management business uh this was a very ugly uh, result. Uh, so um, uh, a big, big loss, uh, basically. And uh, the reason for the loss, it's mostly an accounting um, issue. Well, not an accounting issue. It's just a, a, what's an accounting loss, not necessarily an economic loss. So uh, it kind of we need to unpack it a little bit. Um, but basically, the way uh, that these cases work is that obviously, they've got really long, uh, you know, 
dated outcomes. So, you know, you start a case today and you might not know what's going to happen to it, you know, for another three or four years down the track. So uh, you can get these situations where, and this is what happened in this result, um, you get a couple of maybe unfavorable outcomes uh, from cases. One of them was from dated all the way back to 2011, actually, in this result. Um, and it just so happened to be quite a big one. It's the um, the Westgem case, which, uh, which, which led to a $50 million write down. Uh, because of an unfavorable outcome. So uh, this business model is prone to lumpy results uh, where you get, um, you know, kind of clusters of cases and they complete in certain halves. Realistically, like a six-month result just isn't the right way to think about this business. You need to think over like a three to five-year time horizon, mm-hmm. which is about how long the cases take to complete. Is it safe to say, um, Mickey, that... Um, I- accounting market derived accounting doesn't really suit this company at all yeah i think it's yeah i think that's that's right um but i mean it would be very hard to devise a system that would um kind of you know accurately Mm. because you don't know what's going to happen to the cases until Mm. you know you get the judgment so uh you just it's and, and 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 assuming the probabilities of success and all that stuff is just impossible. So, you, so uh, just just explain. So the cash flow flows out. You you, you pay lawyers for three years or whatever, um, and then uh, and then hopefully get a judgment. And and yeah, so, so so there's a huge investment, I suppose. There's a and, and a long investment cycle. Yeah. So there's uh so there's basically the costs that go into the case, specific costs that go into the case. That all gets capitalized. Uh, on the balance sheet and so you've got these big intangibles and basically um, when the case comes to completion if it's an unsuccessful case they write down that in that investment um, and uh, whereas if it's an in um, where if it's successful uh, they de-recognize it and then they record um, income again. but they only capitalize the the cost of the case they don't capitalize any any you know success no. damages that they expect to, so even if they think they've got a cast iron case i suppose if they think they've got a cast iron case the other lawyers will think so and it'll settle pretty quickly yeah so uh so i think you know the accounting in this business is very very conservative uh because they don't assume like any gains before they've come whereas when when in reality actually a lot of these cases will be worth a lot more um so the uh net assets are basically understated i guess you can put it that way um so uh yeah but i guess just kind of uh, accounting aside um because that's kind of it's all just um that will kind of ebb and flow i guess um over time uh uh yeah so the the thing is that um uh, yeah, so the result was basically just that it had a couple of bad outcomes. Um, they could reverse those outcomes if they're successful at appeal. Uh, but I think it's it's not necessarily something to, to worry about um, because these results will happen from time to time. Uh, and I think what they're basically looking to do um, is transition the business away from this kind of lumpy uh you know, profit loss cycle um, by transitioning to this funds management model. And that will allow them to collect, you know, regular management fees uh, that should hopefully cover their operating costs over time. 
Um, and then you'll still have some lumpiness as cases that, you know, it's unavoidable, uh, but it should hopefully become a much smoother, steadier. Um, so, so they, they make co-investments in all these funds. And, and so that's where there's, there are some write downs, right? And, and, and also um, they still have some cases on their books from before they began the, the funds man- management exactly um, strategy right? yeah exactly right so it's yeah, those so... cases that are sort of rolling off and and two of them that they own entirely the rights to as it were um that they, they, they uh they fell off yeah 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 exactly yeah and they're kind of they're kind of right in the middle of this transition now like with this kind of legacy um cases just rolling off and then and also at the same time their costs are ramping up because they're expanding globally um they're building out this funds management business so you've got kind of rising costs you've got these lost cases in this result uh and then the funds business uh hasn't really kicked into full gear yet so uh yeah so i think that's that's all just contributed to a bad result but uh, you know this is part of the opportunity this is why uh, we think it's it's probably being missed, and um, uh, yeah. So I mean, if they get to that five billion dollar fund target, then um, earnings should be uh, um, pretty pretty. I good. agree. It looks very cheap. The management have have um, generated amazing returns historically, but geez, it's complicated. There's very little like this on the market and i can see why a lot of people and fundies would just miss this it's you have to know this business really in depth to understand these numbers yeah 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 well hopefully that's the opportunity um and the uh the only other thing really of note i guess is just that they bought this omni bridgeway uh europe business um so this company used to be called IMF Bentham, and then they bought Omni Bridgeway in Europe um, and changed their name to Omni Bridgeway because IMF was apparently they got confused with the actual International Monetary Fund. <laughs> or the, um, you know the this so, agency from Mission Impossible is also called IMF. That's I always confused it with that actually. Oh, yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. So so they decided to change their name to Omni Bridgeway, but um so this so this acquisition now the European acquisition gives them expertise in. Um, like recovering post-judgment um, outcomes. So, you know, if you win a case, you know, making sure that, you know, the other party might like hive off their assets into like a complex trust, you know, in the Cayman Islands or yeah. something, and then, you know, you can't get it out. So uh, these guys are like private investigators and they're, so, they're coming send, like, the bo- send the boys around. Yeah. Is that what Not too far from Mission Impossible. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Send in the goons. Sounds um, a bit worrying. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's a it's a. They're really lawyers that they're sending around more than anyone. <laughs> private not, investigators. They're not, out, they're not out breaking people's kneecaps. No. But, um, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, but this is, this basically opens up a new line of business for them because now they can they can fund more cases but they are funding cases now that they where they were worried they couldn't actually recover them um whereas now they can go and they can fund those cases because they can uh go around send the goons around <laughs> <laughs> nice mickey all right um let's finish off with um aussie broadband which is the one i wanted to bring up this is a relatively new listing new recommendation we um this is actually i think the first IPO we've recommended, JC, help me out here, in years, right? Certainly the first one I can remember. Well, but the thing is, though, 
we didn't actually recommend the IPO because uh, oh no we did no, we, did we at, at a dollar but we didn't I think we didn't did we did we, we couldn't put a record no, on it. no one we, we ended either. up putting a record yeah. and then and no one could get yeah, stock and yeah. then the price this is the problem any decent um, yeah true uh, IPO you can't get stock but still we but we um, wanted to I mean even that yeah we wanted unusual. to we we told everyone we wanted yeah. to so that. The thought is the thought that counts. But it, it's yeah. not usually our gig, right? We we don't. There's been lots of hot IPOs, and we haven't no. tried to get in. No, no, no. Um, no normally, yeah. I mean, it, it's that Buffett quote, isn't it? That that the IPO is when the the That's seller right. has all all the information, and the buyer really is just a you know. Now, so. now, just a reminder: Aussie Broadband is a reseller of NBN, so it offers broadband to retail and enterprise customers. It's been in business for a long time, I think. Uh, what fifteen years or so, maybe longer than that. Um, so it's not really. I, I've got to interrupt you for a second. Yep. I've got to because uh, tell everyone that, that Gorev is right now <laughs> speaking. Uh, you can hear him. he's coming through to us via Aussie Broadband. That's right. So uh, you can judge the quality for yourself. And that will be the cue for me breaking off. I think surely, surely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's happened. I think it's happened that. earlier earlier today. It did, it did actually fail, but that's it, it's unusual. Yeah. It's it's quite a good service um, as a customer. But the reason I was interested in this was um, I just heard a lot of separate reports from people in the industry about how good this management was about how good this business was so that piqued my interest and then when i saw the terms of the ipo that not a single insider was selling a single share that money was being raised for a specific um a specific item namely to to build their own fiber network i mean that ticks a lot of boxes already so um it was a very easy stock um from my point of view to upgrade um and the results were just fantastic. Um, the first first year results were just great. It was only the interim, so it's not a full year of results yet, but they are already smashing their prospectus forecast. No doubt COVID has helped because people working from home tend to maybe expense their um, their broadband costs. Well, that's right. And everyone starts working from home and they suddenly think, goodness, I need to upgrade yep. my, <laughs> I need to get better broadband. And here. maybe the company yeah. will pay for it a little bit of it or, well, or, maybe, or they can right, at least yeah. tax it. But then you, you, you retain those customers. Yeah. So that's a permanent, yeah. um, permanent yeah, up. Yeah, their churn is yeah. really low. Um, I don't recall the number, but I remember thinking, wow, that is low. Uh, so they don't lose a lot of customers. But what I really like about this, the way, the reason this business works, and no one makes money from reselling NBN. Telstra makes no money from it. Even TPG, who is ferociously efficient on costs they make a small margin on it but these guys are doing really well because they don't compete on price they are often the most expensive providers in the segment but they they balance that high cost with very good service and and service doesn't just mean saying please and thank you on the phone um, they've actually developed a whole lot of software and a whole lot of technology to make the entire experience really really good so the onboarding is the quickest in the industry it takes um i, I think they said uh, less than 60 minutes to onboard a customer which is faster than anyone else is that what you is that what you absolutely um and mine was right, mine yeah. was 15 minutes onboarding um and so you mean on the phone to actually being yeah to, to get to, it started to having the order Correct. complete yeah, yeah okay yeah. and yeah. without any wow. um any any touch points at all so the whole thing is automated and extremely unusual in this industry um, the customer care, all the billing, uh, the service, um, it, the, the change of plan, change of anything is all taken care of by automation. Um, and what I really like is that they are looking now to build 
their own fiber network. So they'll supplant rental costs with their own network and they can scale just a little bit better. They'll be able to raise margins and offer different products and services once they have their own fiber. And they've built an enterprise portal as well. So they can actually sell a whole bunch of um, enterprise services now to large customers, which is often a source of big revenues and big margins for competitors. So they can now enter that space. I think there is a whole bunch of growth here um, coming for Aussie Broadband. They've got about 4 or 5% of the market at the moment, tiny. Um, and this is never going to be a mass market product. They're never going to get 50% of the market because they're very expensive. But they could easily get 10%, 12% of the market. Um, and um, when you look at the market shares, uh, 40% of their customers um, are those ultra-fast, high-expensive uh, customers who are profitable compared to 12% of customers for the entire NBN. So they're attracting heavy users who pay a lot of money. And that explains why they're able to make money out of a service that no one else can make money out of. They're actually collecting the profitable niche customers from everyone else. And it's a great space to be. Management know exactly what they're doing. The guy who runs this business lives and breathes it. He's done three iterations of this company since he was a teenager. And um, he's just a great entrepreneur. And uh, I think it's definitely worth backing. He hasn't sold a single share. So my so my concern with this right is that um, so you just touched on it there. So how how, mu- how m- big a market share can they really get if they can get ten percent? I think that's probably conservative, by the way. Well, it but- seems like they they sort of they're taking share off uh, Telstra mostly because they're kind Telstra is more that premium end, yeah, yeah. like yeah. perceived, yeah. I guess, yeah. yeah. But how many people are going to pay you know the premium rates for their broadband? I mean, that's uh, to me the question. Whether it's I mean, I suppose if it was twenty percent, then you, then that's a different, you know, because what, what you said there were four or five percent now. Ten percent is just a double mm-hmm. in terms of in terms of that. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, they can get a bit more margin and and uh, slightly higher ARPU mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But um, the just a doubling in their market share um, to me sounds a little bit because uh, the market's not really growing, right? That's the point. Well, and I wonder is, is if Telstra as well, the other companies are, you know, watching this and they're probably going to react or respond if they can. Maybe it's too late, but um, yeah. It's It'd be a interesting. fiercely competitive market. There are about, um, I think I counted about 100, between 90 and 100 different competitors, but there's always been 100 different competitors. And Aussie started with zero market share in regional Victoria and they've grown and grown. The way I I thought about this, and James's point is absolutely correct, that um, this is no obvious moat in this business. It's a competitive industry with no identifiable competitive advantage, with powerful incumbents, and you'd think a relatively small market opportunity. But I would flip a lot of those things around, and and I think this management has shown that they can grow a business against fierce rivals in a competitive space from nothing and be one of the few people in the industry to make margin from it where no one else can. And for me, this broadband is just what they're doing today. I can see that they're clearly laying groundwork here for lots of other products and services to come. Because oh, well, now, 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 now we're growing the market. So what's yeah. <laughs> what are we thinking So they about? mentioned that they made an MVNO agreement. That means they made an agreement with Optus to use Optus's 5G network for additional services. Now, they didn't specify what they're doing with that. I don't think they're just selling mobile plans. That might be part of it. But it looks like they're offering fixed broadband and um, 5G backup for um, 
for fiber in case you know the NBN fails, which we know it can do time to time. Um, <laughs> so it, they're doing that. They're building their own fiber network. They can that opens up to dark fiber connections the way TPG does. Remember, TPG makes fifty percent margins, a third of its profits from dark fiber connections. That it has a so it's a wonderful business. This is the first step towards creating a dark fiber product, which is building your own fiber network. And it's only a small one. They're connecting capital cities and data centers um, with points of interconnect, which is where the NBN meets. Um, but that's, that is a necessary first step. I don't think it will be the last step. Um, there's, I, I think there are big ambitions with this business. And if, if, if all it did was just to grow market share to 8% or so, I think I did the numbers in one of the reviews, you end up with a business that can make maybe $50 million in profit. And it's what a $400 million market cap now, which is fine. So that's not, yeah, bad. I, I yeah, think it caps your downside and you're getting, and, you get and you're getting of, the rest and you get a lot of interesting upside from here. Yeah. Although you're assuming there that it doubles its market share, but I think that's almost, I given, think it I is think a given, given that, yeah. given the, 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 the quality of the product, it sounds, yeah. um, and I do think they've got a, 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 some competitive advantages. I, you know, I, I think that, um, you know the the management is obviously very good. I think that their, um, you know, the brand and mm. uh, the way they're perceived by people. But uh, yeah, it's just a question of where they can go with that market. And and I suppose with a lot of good companies, you you, you can never quite be sure where where they find yeah. that that extra. Remember, TPG started as a like... as a hardware reseller, and mm. yeah, look that's where right. it is today. Yeah, I think sometimes when you find these exceptional founders. Um, you know, you don't want to pay silly amounts for their ambitions, um, but I don't think we're doing that in this case. And and we are on board for you know whatever this guy can conjure up. Um, and, and I think when you weigh yeah. up that sort of up and upside and downside, it look kind of makes sense even at this price. Yeah, that's right. You're getting that ambition for free with Altium, for example. Yeah. You're paying an awful Correct. lot for the ambition, right. but the ambition is grand. Is, it's yes. slightly <laughs> different. I was just thinking there. It's it, there's 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 actually a clear plan mm. for it. So. I suppose it's slightly different uh, um, situations. Yeah, Bryce, yeah, I still think um, Aussie Broadband's gone up um, a long way since it listed it at a dollar. I think we recommended it at about uh, $2, up to $2. Um, and it's now, what, two seventy, two eighty. dollars I still don't think it's crazily priced. And, um, you know, for, for risk-tolerant um, investors, I still, still think there's some, it, it still could make some sense. Yeah, you did great um, picking it out as a, as a float, as um, as you say, but it's not our normal hunting ground. So to have at least covered it from that point and then upgraded it when when there was an opportunity, I think it's a, you know, a great one I wish I'd have paid attention to. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Um, well, the, I remember the Dragon's Den was quite uh, quite contentious because I think it's, it's one of those things where it, it's very easy to make um, a bear case for. Um well, I think we we were all on board at a dollar. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was that, right. was that 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 was the yeah, thing. Yeah, we, we, you know, it, it's a question of where it was going to get to after the float, and um, I think the upgrade at two dollars was was harder to justify than if you could get it at a dollar. Mm. But but um, look, I think you made made the case, and I think it's it's um, it's going well. And so far, the product hasn't dropped out, so that was good. It would have been an awful <laughs> to see a dropout while I'm talking about how great the stock is. <laughs> well, speaking of, it sounded like you were just. Oh good. no! Oh, maybe we should. Maybe that's a, that's a sign. We better, we better wrap this up. I know. Sponsored by Aussie Broadband. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, gents, we'll do this again next time. I think we got. Um, 
we're going to actually hear from our Canadian office in the next podcast. So a special treat involved there. Um, Exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. I know. I can't wait. Hey. I haven't decided what we're going to talk about yet, but um, I've got some ideas. Oh, he's got he's got he's got plenty. Graham he's is got maybe all his stocks from reporting. The season. most um, knowledgeable person on CSL you'll find. So I think it's when you get him sitting down, you can't not really talk. Certainly to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, till then, JC. Thanks very much, um, especially for um, bringing up Domino's, which I just think I, I love talking about that business. Fantastic stuff. Don't say bringing up Domino's. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's, that's too much that's too much and uh, <laughs> alright and Mickey um, thanks very much for your time as well thanks cheers everyone else thank you for listening <laughs>